Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. We've been in a series on spiritual gifts, and um, I don't know if it's ever going to end, so I'll probably be retired, and you'll have to figure out what else I would have said, because I keep running out. So this morning, I want to make sure that I finish something I left off last week. I didn't want to leave it off and uh, come back to it. And uh, our title this morning is How Much More, and you'll recognize it in just a minute coming out of the passage of Scripture that's relevant, but think about some of the things we've been speaking about. We've been referencing spiritual gifts. There are those that are more the normal or expected gifts that people are not surprised by, but there are giftings that do surprise people. For example, I've, I've been friends, I've had the privilege of being friends, missionaries in Africa, for example, for decades and decades who, under the power of the Spirit, have seen evangelists experience healings. And when something like that happens in a small village, especially to a tribal leader, his wife is raised up from the deathbed or something like that, sometimes an entire uh, community, an entire little um, a town will give their lives to Jesus Christ because it gets attention. Uh, and by the way, if it gets attention out in the world, shouldn't it also get attention in the church? And some of what I was speaking about over these weeks with certain gifts like words of knowledge or words of wisdom that minister to us, and we'll kind of unpack a little of that today, when, when it's obviously something that we can't manufacture, that we can't make happen, God gets the glory and he gets the attention, and even his people sit up and take notice, let alone those who are outside of Jesus, Right? So I could tell lots of stories, but I'll not finish my sermon again, and so I'm going to rein in my ADD this morning. Good luck, he said. We'll tangle later, brother. And uh, what I'd like you to do is join me in prayer as we launch into this, okay? Lord, we want to thank you. I want to thank you that I believe your mercy has been manifested You are mighty to save. And you are the air I breathe. And I think some of your saints here are starting to get that. It's quickening. I was encouraged last week by the response of your body. And not because we need to show appreciation to one another, but because you are the one that we need to give our most and most careful attention to. And we gather out of the world on the Sabbath to honor you, to glorify you, to look to you, and to mark ourselves as your followers, setting time apart to pay attention to the God of heaven who has rescued us, the God who made all things, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Profound that the maker of heaven and earth would be interested in engaging us. But that is the glorious gospel that we believe. So this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, once again, that you continue to push back on our adversary, that unseen power that will be referenced again in your word today, that has a a vested interest in making sure we do not connect with you. Help us. Bind him in the name of Jesus, the name which is above every name, the authority that is found in his name because of his victory on the cross and victory over death, 
burial, resurrection. He has defeated our adversary, crushed his head, the head of Satan with his heel. We're grateful. And we pray, God, that our flesh would be subdued, that we would hear from your spirit, that, Holy Spirit, you would continue to stir among your precious saints. Build them up in their most holy faith, as the language of the New Testament tells us. And we'll thank you. Thank you for helping your uh, limited servant this morning to upbuild, edify your body for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, how much more? A primer on spiritual gifts. And my eyes are weepy and I'm having trouble reading. Sorry. If you have a bulletin, and I hope you do, you might want to grab it and just look at the notes. I'm going to tell you where I'm going. There are two parts to this. The first part is simply an introductory, get the big picture, the living God. And then, if he's a living God, there should be a living or lively church. And uh, some of our worship this morning was lively, and it was great. And uh, to glorify God and give attention to him. So you can see. Now, what I want you to notice, though, is as I cover some of these subjects, the very bottom, there's a mark called gifts, question mark. And the reason I have that down there so you can fill in as your wheels are going around, which gifts would apply to this particular subject? And have I ever felt like maybe I've experienced some of that? Not me. I'm not asking you to tell me what I've experienced. I'm asking you to tell yourself what you've experienced and maybe write it down as something to pursue. I had a few questions. They may figure in our teaching today as we work our way along. So let me begin with the living God. Can I just say that God is alive? Well, amen to that. He's not the deist God who made the world, wound it up like a clock, and then went on vacation. He's active and living, involved in our lives. Some of us can say that amen. I just had one of our brothers say to me, walking out of the door this morning, I, had a, I think I had an answer to prayer. Get out of town. <laughs> well, we know that he answers prayer. He answers prayer and he acts. Not always the way we want or on our schedule. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? You have a better schedule than... My wife loves to say to me, I have some suggestions for God. He doesn't always listen. Once in a while, he goes, that's a good suggestion, Cheryl. Bam! And it comes in. It's like, ooh. So Jesus, at one point, is with his disciples, and he's encouraging his disciples, his saints. Did you know that if you have trusted Jesus for eternity, you're one of his saints? You're not cocky because I'm a saint. That's not what we mean. But I do know that I am one. Not because of my greatness, but because the Bible says I am one. If I've trusted him, I'm one of his holy ones. That's all it means, though. One of his holy ones. Set apart for him. See, now my ADD just kicked in, but I think it's worth it. Anybody have something that you have set apart for you? It's your stuff. You know, I mean, this is my stuff. I got some martial arts equipment. It's my stuff. Stay out of it. It's mine. Do you think in those terms that God has set you apart? You're, that's mine. You're not here for yourself. You're here for him. He loves you. We sang about it. Amazing. So here's what he's saying to his 
disciples, and you're going to recognize this immediately. I know you are. Very familiar. Ready? Ask, and it shall be given to you. Familiar? Seek, and you shall find. By the way, they're continuals. That's going to, that has an implication for one of our questions and answer things today. Everyone who receives, uh, wait a minute, where was I? Knock and you shall be open to you. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son or daughter shall ask him for a loaf of bread? Will he give him a stone? Here, eat this. Or if he shall ask for a fish, will he not give, he will not give him a snake, will he? Unless they're in season, I guess, but no. And then this great line, he's saying to his buddies, he's saying this to his disciples, us, if you then being evil, are you in tune with yourself? If you then being evil, you're, you're, we're all self-centered. We all want to go the wrong. How You know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, we're on the subject of gifts, and this verse is about gifts. It's not about spiritual gifts. Okay, I'm just being honest. But there's an application, is there not? How much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what you need to glorify him? Duh. I had my duh hat. I'll bring it. On my last Sunday, I'm bringing a bunch of hats, you know, just, to, just for a good farewell. Duh. How much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? You know what the context is? The context is Jesus has just spoken to his disciples about the annoying neighbor. Do you remember the annoying neighbor? Do you know who I'm talking about? He's telling the story of the guy who has company come and, oh, I don't have enough food. So I go to my neighbor and say, hey, can I borrow some flour? I got to bake some bread. I got people just showed up. And the neighbor says, hey, we're all in bed. Would you get lost? And Jesus says, if the neighbor keeps, the one who needs the, the food, bread, a loaf, whatever it is he needs, if he keeps not, come on, I need some help here, I'm, I'm in a bind, even if he's not a good enough neighbor to get up and help him, just to make him stop. Some of us have neighbors that we wish they would stop. Never mind, I, I won't go on that. But anyway... Just to make him stop, he'll get out of bed and give him what he needs so he goes away. And we read that and we think God is saying, yeah, that's what I'm like. You've got to nag me to death because I'm a real curmudgeon. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if a non-believing person can be that persuaded by that, how much easier, how much more interested God is in loving us and helping us and and. Yeah, you get it? So, the annoying neighbor, that was the context. And then, in this story, it is told in another place, in, in Luke, it ends this way. If you then, being evil, let's read that last one. Here we go to Luke. The same story, the same exhortation. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, that sounds the same. How much more shall your heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. I didn't make this up. This is Jesus' words. So my point is, the living God, I think if he's the living God, how much more could we actually see him at work? How much more lively our church could be? We're too used to doing church without him. 
Did you hear what I said? We're too used in churches to doing church without God, which in a way is an oxymoron when you think about it. So the church is designed to be lively and life-giving and life-breathing, not exhausting and the old... uh, Dunkin' Donuts guy, remember him? I got to make the donuts getting up in the middle of the night. I'm going to church today. Can't wait. So I had a hard time. I struggled with how to pack this message today. And the idea that the church, when it is lively, glorifies God and is manifesting that by its dependence upon him. And one of the ways that that comes out, and we're going to have to speak more about that at another time, is prayer. All right, Dependent prayer. Um, I'm going to share a couple of things in just a minute just to kind of get an orientation to where I want to go. But the glory of God is manifested even by the fact that we set time aside to talk to God, the invisible but living God. And people go, what's with these people? Right? If you talk about spending time praying to God or, or, uh, or giving or serving, you know, people say, really? Well, there's something that I value. There's somebody that I serve, somebody I belong to, and he's real to me. And it makes a difference. So last week, uh, for example, we were talking about prayer, and there was a question that came in. I'm going to hold it off for a little later, but it had to do with if you pray against something that's working against you and you don't immediately have a result, does that mean you didn't mean it when you prayed it? Did you not do it right? No. I think the verse we looked at at the beginning was keep asking, keep knocking. The one who keeps knocking, it's not always poof. One of the one of the dangers of talking about some of the bondage things we mentioned last week is that some of the stories I'm telling you, there is an instant release and people are free and they can feel it's like night and day and their life has changed from that point on. I had two major breakthroughs in my early Christian ministry experience that were night and day experience. The rest of it, I had to fight a little longer. Like the rest of us, right? I, you had to keep at it. I had to keep pushing back against it. So when I'm leaning on God and I'm praying in that way, I believe he is glorified. And there's a bunch of things we can learn about. But it's still legitimate for us to keep asking him. It's still legitimate for us as a church of Jesus Christ to go to him the way his disciples did and say, would you teach us how to pray? Remember that? Here they are wandering around with Jesus, and one day they figured it out. You know what? We're still not quite praying the way he does. Could you teach us how to pray? You know, they're camping out. You know, they're having a great time. Marshmallows over the fire, the whole thing. You don't believe me, do you? Nor should you on that one. But anyway, they're, you know, they're camping out. Middle of the night, where's Jesus? Where was he? Where was he? He was up by himself praying. Middle of the night. We're not quite getting this yet. Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? I think it's totally right to keep asking, and we're all still, I'm still learning. In fact, I'm going to make a confession this morning, I think, if I get to it. Wish I was further along myself. So, let's talk for a minute about a lively church. I told you I had a hard time knowing how I wanted to address this, so bear with me for one minute as I report to you the outline that Richard Lovelace in his great book, uh, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, 
writing about revived churches, awakened churches, lively churches, can I put it that way? That there are four elements, and on your bulletin, I've listed them. And I'm doing them backwards. Are you okay with me doing it backwards? Because if you're not okay, I'll just say, amen, let's go home. I'll be done. But anyway, you can go backwards. If you go to the bottom, we're going to work our way up. Because here's, here's, what, it, here's what he says becomes, and I love quoting this, I stole it. You know, all the great lines are stolen. You know that. From a great preacher, um, Robinson, Haddon Robinson, who was president of Denver Seminary for a while. Haddon Robinson used to call certain things when they came alive for you stark raving reality. When a church gets quickened, when a saint gets quickened, when you get enlivened, when you are leaning on and being ministered to by the Spirit, and it's alive, and it's growing you, and all of that's happening, four things become stark, raving reality. The first one is at the bottom, justification. Remember the song, Good, Good Father? It's not because we're swell. It's because he has justified us. He has declared us righteous and given us the righteousness of Christ in place of our sin. It's called imputation, if you want the theological term. And you have his righteousness stamped on you. And that's why you are totally accepted in the beloved and why he loves us. And he can look at us even with our Dirty faces and dirty knees or whatever. And he said, I know you love me. It was in that song, right? It's, it's that you love me, that I'm pleased. I can look at you and be pleased. It's because of justification. That becomes real to me. I'm not wondering anymore. What do I have to do to make sure I get in? Anybody in the room know what I mean? If you're sitting here today and think, how can I be sure? This week, you know, all right, so this week, I, I, I will be serving our sister Isabel with a send-off, right? A saint who has gone to be with Jesus. There's no better time in people's lives to start thinking about, and what about me? Do I know when I walk through the door of death, which every person in this room will, unless Jesus comes soon, when I walk through that door, how do I know where I'm going to go? Do I have that settled? That's what justification settles forever. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. He's got me. Justification. becomes stark raving reality. Second, sanctification. I actually have the power to stand against sin. Get out of town. No, really? And we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes because we've mostly, as a culture, lost the idea of what sin is at all. Nothing is anymore. Except maybe carbon footprints and things like that. That's sin, right? Then, the third thing is indwell. I'm going backwards. Indwelling, the fact that I'm not alone in this walk in the world. I've got a helper who can help me be lively in Christ and help my church be lively in Christ. I've got that presence. And finally, there is authority. And so I'm starting with authority because that's where I left off last week. Okay? So now, you've all gotten very quiet. You're making me nervous. 
A lively church has gifts. I think I have a picture of gifts. Once again, my little Christmas picture. And then the definition of spiritual gifts, which uh, we stole from Dr. Flynn, uh, Leslie Flynn, the Baptist preacher. A, a spiritual gift is, what is it? A spirit-given ability for Christian service, for helping move God's kingdom forward. A lively church, justified, sanctified, indwelt, and exercising authority. I was a little bit worried because we did talk quite a bit about demonic spirits last week, and I was worried that you're going to think I'm a little off my rocker, which I am, I'm confessing clearly. But... Uh, preoccupied with that, and I'm not, but I want to finish the subject, if I may, because it does bleed over into our dealing with our own weaknesses and our own flesh as well. So I'm working backwards, and if you think about this, if these are the four areas that become real to us when we're enlivened, these are the four areas, one full quarter of your spiritual life deals with the enemy. Think about it. If those four areas are true, which they are, one quarter, at least, of what I'm up against when I'm having difficulty, whatever, is not just my brokenness, but it's my adversary who's making life hard for me. And I need to spot him and give him a good one of those in the name of Jesus. Okay? There you go. So, last week I want to finish with the text. This passage, interestingly... Very interestingly, this passage follows what we read about a minute ago in Luke about prayer. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The first thing about prayer was in the Sermon on the Mount. This one is set in the context of what we're about to read. So he just gives this exhortation about God will give you the Holy Spirit. He'll help you. The Spirit will help you and work in your life. And here's what it says after that. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. And he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed. And so would you be. And began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, who's getting glory here? God is getting glory, right? And the son of God is starting to manifest his messiahship, if you will. And when they start saying that, which is the right response for the Jewish people, the Pharisees heard it and said, well, well, yeah, something happened, all right. It was pretty impressive, but we think he cast that demon out by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. <laughs> they had a little southern preacher in them, too, you know, the demons. Oh, boy. Let's face it. This kind of an event is kind of hardcore, is it not? I mean, that's hardcore. When, I've, when people have gotten free in or I'm just going to say it the way I see it, in or outside of the church. And people see the radical freedom that that person has gained. He gets glory. It's not the counselor. It's the authority and finger of Jesus himself that frees you. He uses people, but he works through. He uses the gifts. Duh, that's what we're talking about. But it's him working. <clears throat> I didn't finish last week because I talked about the, the normal attacks of the enemy affects about 65% according to Neil Anderson. Remember, 65% of Christians. Let me read the next section. 
The second level of conflict is characterized by those who can distinguish between their own thoughts and strange, evil voices which seem to overpower them. What am I thinking? They wonder with alarm when a barrage of sinful ideas, thoughts, and fantasies floods their mind. They experience no victory and wonder if they're losing it. But they are so frightened by the prospect that they won't share it with anyone. There's where we get tripped up. Can I just say that? The book, The Calvary Road, which I have exhorted reading numerous times, only the first three chapters, brothers and sisters, if you read more than three chapters, my pastor team will and elders will witness to you that I get mad because it gets a little too hard. But the opening, anyway, you have to bring what is in darkness into the light. That's what the scripture teaches. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with one another. It's kind of hard if you don't trust each other. I think we have some work to do. Let me finish. They're so frightened by the prospect they won't share it with anyone. The majority of Christians at this stage still fail to see their struggle as a spiritual conflict. They seek counseling. They try to discipline their thoughts. They experience no or little or no improvement. I estimate about 15% of all Christians fall into this category. Everybody sit around, look around, do the math. No, I'm kidding. Most of these people are depressed, anxious, paranoid, bitter, angry. They may have fallen into drinking, drugs, eating disorders. You fill it in. The last category is 5%, and they're really, obviously, we, most people, it's a major mental or emotional issue, whatever. My point that I made by reading that is that there may be even somebody in the room who has had that experience. I can't tell you how many people over the 45 years I've been doing some of this have come to me and said, I was afraid to ever bring this out because I thought for sure I would be institutionalized. And it was a lie. And they ended up free. I mean, it's, it's and God gets the glory. It's so amazing. When pe people who've been freed from bulimia, whatever it happened to be that was beating them up and they give witness to that, to the congregation of saints, how can we not give them glory? Oh, that doesn't happen anymore. Okay, then the God that I serve must be heretical or something, you know, because he's alive. He's the living God, and he hasn't changed his mind. Well, the story goes on. And by the way, can I just say something? Those kind of sign gifts obviously get glory and attention inside or outside the church. But I'm going to make a point later that every gift that is given to God's people, if they're exercised in the power of the Holy Spirit, are giving glory to God and helping move the kingdom forward. Whether it's in the obvious, glorious way or whether it's in a more subtle, more quiet way. But everyone's got their part to contribute. So think about what kind of gifts would be needed to deal with people in these kind of bondage areas. You know, you went through the list. Miracles, obviously. Sometimes I don't know whether it was a miracle. I don't know whether it was a healing. I know many times God uses a word of knowledge to uncover what the issue is. Discernment, the discernment of spirits. Sometimes evangelists, right? Going into communities, preaching the gospel on foreign fields. The evangelist rebukes the enemy public. Everybody knows the witch doctor had a demon. Everybody knows it. And he gets free. 
I was talking with somebody this week. I'll come back to the story in a minute. But um, how is it that when a person is stuck and I can't seem to get free of this particular issue and we take it into the light with somebody we trust, somebody in ministry or a friend who is spiritually inclined, who is who's a prayer warrior or whatever. I've got one of those. I hope you've got one of those. You go to your prayer warrior and say, I'm stuck here. And the Holy Spirit reveals you know, you're, you're, you're fighting this issue, but what caused it is this that happened. I didn't even know this. This happened. Did something like this happen to you when you were like 10 or 12 or something? How did you know that? And all of a sudden they realized that was the ground that gave the enemy an open door to their life. And they just break down, boom, and they are cleaned up and freed, right? How did that happen? Well, I hate to fill you in on this, folks. God knows everything. So all, is, all that is needed is if he will tell us. If we will manifest dependence upon him, maybe he'll help us get free. Well, I didn't finish the story about Jesus here yet. It's time for the Pharisees to get a little theology lesson from Jesus, right? Because their problem is not theology. Their problem is their opposition. Our Sin nature has an inclined opposition to not having our stuff mess with. You know what I mean? Don't mess up with my little kingdom here. Don't fiddle. We like the situation we got. The Pharisees are the boss people in this context. You know, you're messing. In fact, what Jesus says to them was quoted by our president just before the Civil War. A house divided by, against itself cannot stand, right? And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom, you know, guys, come on, shape up, listen. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How shall his kingdom stand? And if I by, well, now he takes the real shot. I like this one. If I buy Beelzebub, if I buy Satan and casting out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Because you got some exorcists in your community here. You guys saw the chosen? Right? You see the chosen? You see uh, Nicodemus? I love his character. He's great. Nicodemus goes to try to help Mary. Remember that scene? You have no power here. Foxy voice she had, huh? No power. And that was accurate. So, Satan, working against him, you have no power here. Who do your sons cast them out? Are they using Jehovah God? Are they in the power of the spirit of the living God somehow, even in that pre-Christian time? Or are they doing some kind of magical ritual? But they'll judge you. For what you just said. But here's the last line. I love this and so do you, I'm sure. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So if there's movement breaking out a demonic stronghold in anyone's life, or if there's victory over your flesh in anyone's life, the kingdom of God is moving forward. I just want to be clear. It doesn't have to just be the demonic. The kingdom of God is moving forward. So if I'm doing this in the spirit of God, then the kingdom has shown up. I would advise you not arguing with God's kingdom, he's saying. 
So deliverance is an advance of the kingdom. The kingdom of darkness is getting pushed back. And a lively church has been given gifts to do just that. All spirit-led gifts are going to have that kind of impact. It's going to be a lively result. I'm going to read something from Loveless because I want to set things up from my successor. No pressure, Dennis. I expect you to pray revival into the place within three weeks after I leave. <laughs> Glory. This, this, this is um, Dr. Loveless speaking about the, the gravitational pull, not only of the enemy's work, but do you do know that your flesh is what cooperates with the enemy? It's the inclination in me. I get prompted. And my inclination goes, ooh, I think I'll do that. Bad idea. But that's what happens, right? Whatever the issue is, we'll try to unpack it in a minute. Pastors gradually, uh, they're talking about the pushback that happens if you're going to get people to really believe what Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And un <clears throat> pastors will tend to settle down and lose interest in being change agents because there will be pushback. I can't tell you how many times I'm trying to speak life into people and say, you're not on task with God. One day, we're all going to stand before Jesus. In the kingdom or not in the kingdom. We're all going to stand. We're going to give an account. If you're not on task, and when I do, and they basically say, thanks, but I'm not interested... Okay, so some preachers get tired and just say, fine, we'll just play church. That's what he's talking about here. I'm going to read this. It becomes tacitly understood that the laity will give pastors places of special honor in the exercise of their gifts. If the pastors will agree to leave their congregation's pre-Christian lifestyles undisturbed and do not call for the mobilization, listen to this line, this is what got my attention, the mobilization of lay gifts for the work of the kingdom. Your gifts, my job is not to make you happy. Did you know that? And I have succeeded, have I not? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. My job is to make you holy. I can't make you holy, but to coach you toward Honoring the Lord. Do you understand? My job is not to do the work of the ministry. My job is to train you how to do the work of the ministry, which is why you've been given gifts. We've got that wrong, and this place has had that wrong for many years. Perform. And that's exactly what it says. Their pride is fed. The pastors are not permitted to become, are, are permitted to become ministerial superstars. Their pride is fed, their insecurity is pacified, even if they are run ragged, and their congregations are permitted to remain herds of sheep in which each has cheerfully turned to his own way. Ooh, don't you hate people like that? How dare him write a book like this? Anyway, my point is, it's work, and it's a kingdom work to get our gifts operating for the glory of God. Without being hung up, whether you know it all. Sometimes people, I don't know, I don't know. Just start serving and see where God starts to bless and where it's like, that ain't my thing. There are certain ministries, if you ask me to do it, it's like, this would be a disaster. Wrong, bad idea. Won't do it. 
Okay, so here's the, um, the last couple of points I want to make. I'm going to skip quickly over this. A lively church, a lively church is a church that is engaged with that living relationship with the Holy Spirit. Um, the, same, the same brother, Loveless, when he talks about the stages of um, revival, renewal, he says the secondary, the first thing is justification, sanctification, the indwelling reality of the Spirit, and warfare authority all become real to the individual, but it goes past that because the individuals join together in mission for Jesus, which there's a growing hunger in this place for outreach to touch those who need Jesus. Amen? Amen. There is some of that, and we want to fan that flame. Corporate prayer, individually and corporately, expresses dependence on the power of the Spirit. And community, being in union with his body in big community and little community. Small group, big group. There's life to be gleaned. There's life to breathe in when a church is lively. The next section in your text, I'm going to fly through it. I'm going to skip the verse. You can look it up for yourself. It's simply the one where Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you like orphans. I'm going to come to you. But he didn't come back as Jesus resurrected. Have you noticed that? He hasn't visited our church that way lately. Maybe he did one time. I missed it. But he sent the Spirit, which is the third member of the triune Godhead, which means you have Jesus and you have the Father and you have the Spirit. you get that? It's not a sin to pray to the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Some people are still hung up on stuff like that. They're all God. The Holy Spirit, he will help you. He will comfort you. And the gifts are given through the Spirit, and we need them because we don't know the answer to every possible situation or possibility. We need guidance from the Spirit. We need gifts of wisdom. We need gifts of knowledge. We need the gift of exhortation. We need discernment. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to resist the enemy. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to speak what God wants us to say instead of what our flesh is saying. I can't tell you how many Christians have derailed other people by saying, oh, I think that's wonderful that you're running around with your girlfriend and that you're, it's okay. It's not okay. So hence, dependent prayer. I was interacting with a saint in our congregation. Boy, I hope they made it today. Did you make it today? I have to see them later. Um, we were interacting and uh, talking about some of the manifestations of the, these gifts, which are very, some are very low-key. You wouldn't think, oh, wow, that was miraculous. You wouldn't think that. But a person who is in tune with the Spirit, amazingly, will communicate life to another brother or sister. And I was, as I was sitting, thinking, and I was going over account after account that I could remember, remarkable times of somebody ministering to me, speaking, no, the problem is this. And, I, and all of a sudden, the lights come on, and the Holy Spirit liberates me from that struggle. And I'll, how did that happen? And the more I thought about it, the more jazzed up I got about how important it is that a congregation is lively. Because we can speak life to one another. And I thought, that explains why church discipline was so scary to people who took this stuff seriously. 
I would never want to miss out from that. I would never want to be disconnected from that source of life and encouragement. I'll give you one example. I've shared it before. One day, I was, I was, uh, this was back when I was back up north, and I used to pray with pastors. And uh, I, I, we would meet at 6.30 in the morning. I got up one morning, and I was in a rotten mood. I was not happy. Can you imagine pastor in a rotten mood? I was discouraged with stuff. I was discouraged with fruitlessness, pushback, the kind of stuff I already told you. People like, shut up, Pastor. You don't know what you're talking about. I literally have had people when I'm looking at Scripture and telling, you know, you're wrong. I'm wrong. Okay. I was done. I got up. Yeah, the brothers are expecting me. Uh, I don't feel like praying. Yeah, you know what? I'm just going to do it as an talk about a godly attitude, as an act of obedience. All the chuckling tells me some of you relate. I get in the car, I get down there, I'm sitting there, I'm just, I mean, I am just dead. I'm at the table, these brothers are praying. We're praying in the basement of what became Davis College's uh, library, as a matter of fact. We're down there praying. These guys are praying. They're giving God glory. (laughs) Talking about how God answers prayer. I'm just sitting there as a quiet, like I'm bummed. A brother I will love to the death. Mark Lucas helped ordain him from my charismatic brother friend's church. He was there praying with us, and he opened the scripture, and he just started reading scripture. He had no idea. I don't think he had any idea. I just think the Holy Spirit told him, read this text. And he opened the text where Jesus goes to his disciples and says, Caught any fish? Nah, we were uh, throw it on the other side of the boat, get a catch. You know the story. Peter's like, sure, you know about fishing, right? You know carpentry. You don't know anything about fishing. But because you say so, master, who we love, they thro- what happened? Didn't matter that they caught a million fish. He read that text, Lord, we've labored all night, and that was me. I've been laboring all night and caught nothing, and I am dead in my soul. And as soon as I heard it, I broke down and sobbed, and I was raised from the dead on the spot. Do you know what I'm saying? How did he know? He didn't. The Holy Spirit knew, because remember, God knows everything. Hello? And he sent that word to raise me back up where I belong. That's body life, brothers and sisters. You understand? We should be expecting more of that and looking for it. All right, so I do not have time to teach you how to war back, push back, because that's one of the questions. Gene, Uncle Gene sent me a question. How do you get, yeah, he's Uncle Gene. How do you get uh, the words, the names. Remember, Jesus would say, you deaf and dumb spirit. Or what, how do you get that? Whatever they do, that's their name. That's good enough. You don't know their angelic name, Ariel or something. Who knows? But you do know what they do. You also can know what 
sins you're up against, but you have to understand what those words mean so you can take a stand against it. So we'll come back to that. But where I really want to end, if I may, is I want to take us to the end of this story that Jesus gave because it's an exhortation about which I would like to teach more. I probably will run out of time. I don't mean this morning. I'm already out of time. I'm talking about in my life ahead of us, about prayer, about depending, dependent prayer, because I want you to see this ending text. So if we could go to Matthew 12, verses 28 first, this is where the story ended. You remember this. Jesus just said this. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come upon you, right? Anybody know what the next verse is? Here it is. Ready? Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Jesus has defeated the strong man, but he has given. Now, we like to quote that and say, yeah, but he has given authority to his saints to liberate them and others, just like when. Peace is declared after war, and there are still islands where there are skirmishes going on because they don't realize the authority of the peace has not arrived yet. This is over. And the saints have been granted this privilege of co-laboring with God. Remember when Jesus even said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. I'm going to read something from a wonderful little booklet that went out of print. In my opinion, that was kind of tragic, but it's called Effective Prayer by J. Oswald Sanders. He's referencing this very text where Jesus speaks about this. Jesus dealt with the cause, not the effect. And if we're going to pray effectively, we must follow the same pattern. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is seen occupied not so much with the wicked man and woman and the evil conditions he confronted as with the forces of evil behind them. He, he detects even in the nice words of Jesus, oh, far be uh, Paul, uh, Peter, you shouldn't go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Okay? Also, souls are bound in sin, but our concern in prayer should not only to be pray for them, not only to pray for them, but to pray against Satan who holds them captive. What does it mean to bind the strong man, if not to restrain his activity by appealing to the conquering power of him who was manifested to destroy? Remember the verse we looked at last week, 1 John? It's it's up there. You can put it up there if you want. The Son of God appeared for this very purpose, that he might loose, destroy, eliminate, tear down, set free the works of the devil. What's the works of the devil? Keeping not only people in the church, but especially lost people outside of the church in bondage for eternity. That's his goal. The stakes are high. Heaven and hell. Render inoperative the works of the devil. Behold, I've given you authority, he said, over all the power of the enemy. What value is this delegation of authority if we don't exercise it? In the history of the China Inland Mission, the tide of many a crisis has turned when its workers have met the situation with prayer and fasting. Many a stubborn city has opened. Many an intransigent heart has yielded. Anybody know people with intransigent hearts? 
Stubborn hearts. Anybody know anybody like that? Hmm. Many an intransigent heart has yielded. Many a financial need has been supplied and many a delicate personal difficulty has been resolved by this means. Pressing in in prayer. I want to speak more about that uh, in the future, but I just want to say this. HBC, Harmony Baptist, we have a bondage area. We talked about it before. I'm going to unleash that later. But we need to link arms and warfare pray against the strongholds of the enemy. And what does God have in mind? Release those captives in the church or out of the church. Get them freed up. We have work to do releasing the captives in the name of Jesus in and out of the church. I have a confession to make. I have not well trained you on that, and I feel like I'm still a teenager in prayer. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm a two-year-old. Might be a little above that. Maybe an adolescent. I don't know where you would calculate yourself in terms of laying hold of God and seeing a breakthrough. But it's where a lively church will need to park. Right? So let's pray. All of my rambling, God, is of no value unless your Holy Spirit helps us. So we're asking for that help. But also, the help of your Holy Spirit is of no value if we have intransigent hearts. So, Lord, let us not respond to our flesh. Let us not allow the enemy to prompt us to protect our little kingdoms. But let us genuinely pray the way Millions of Christians around the world pray every week at least. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means in my, my little section of earth as well. And so, God, we don't want to pray blasphemies. We want to earnestly say, your will be done on earth in me in my little kingdom area and in my church as it is in heaven. Please, God, stretch your hand out and help us. We'll thank you in the great name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen and amen.